0: and welcome to this alternative audio commentary on Laura, the 1944 picture directed by Otto Preminger. My name is Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Laura to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown in a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie, I'm watching a Region 1 DVD here, and there is a black and white 20th Century Fox logo that comes just before the start of the movie. When the 20th Century Fox logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, and that'll allow us all momentarily to hit the play button together and watch the movie in perfect, synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, once again, it's just after the 20th Century Fox logo has faded to black, I'm going to say 3, 2, 1, play here, and that'll be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. So, ready, 3, 2, 1, play. And we're in. Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb. Their names are on the screen right now. And the title of the picture, Laura, on the screen right now, if you're trying to sync up. Very happy to be doing this movie as a a continuation of my little film noir series of commentaries here. You know, it it occurs to me, looking at this opening title sequence, that it's very much uh, like many movies of the period, and perhaps even uh to this day this this is sort of a credit sequence that's just trying to get the credits out of the way but it is kind of cool how we have that portrait of Laura you know the first time you see the picture you have you're looking at that portrait before you know what its significance is that opening title sequence is also quite interesting to me just because it's so not flashy and understated uh, movies of this period, you know, tended to have not as flashy opening title sequences. Um, but later in his career, uh, Otto Preminger would, would do Anatomy of a, Mur- a Murder, which I think is his his best movie. And the opening titles there were done by Saul Bass, and they're just awesome. So we begin here. Here's uh, Dana Andrews, our lead, and I'll have some things to say about him. He examines all the ornate things in Waldo Lidecker's house, including those masks. Maybe a little bit of a call forward there that uh, the character, uh, the idea of wearing masks, the character of Lidecker, of course, will have much to hide. And Preminger makes sure that we take note of the clock, which will figure in. It's pretty cool how we have these glass shelves here with all the, the glassware, that fancy glassware on it. It allows Preminger to uh, shoot through it and s- still see his his actor. Uh, and it also has a way of sort of putting you, uh, putting the viewer into the space. Uh there's a cool little flash pan there. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't think I. When I was reviewing the movie, I don't. I didn't even take a special note of that. But that's a cool little flash pan there. I'll zoom out and speak more generally about the movie. But just a couple things to note off the bat. The whole thing with homoeroticism and and. Um, there's this idea i think the the movie touches upon which is sort of worlds colliding the socialite world or the highfalutin high society world versus the sort of hard scrabble roughneck uh, neighborhood guy world represented there by the andrews character and the first time he meets waldo lidecker lidecker receives him while he's in in the bath typing <laughs> and asks him to hand him a washcloth and there there you see how Andrews uh, uh, playing uh, Lieutenant MacPherson, not Detective MacPherson, but Lieutenant MacPherson. You see, he throws it at him. He doesn't. He doesn't go and hand it to him. Um, there were some things, a couple of lines and scenes that were not used in the in the in the final film. Uh, that where the um, the effete or uh, sort of more feminine or, or gay aspects of uh, the Liedecker character and uh, Dana Andrews's character uh, McPherson's sort of um, regarding him that way as sort of effete and and uh, gay. Uh, there were a couple sort of oblique references to it that were actually taken out or or left out of the the movie, but uh, you still have little touches of it, as when he tosses the washcloth to him instead of uh, going over and handing it. Preminger was a really slick director. I he's regarded as one of the greats, but uh he's often, you know, he was much more of a stylist than meets the eye, I think. And you know, already we've had a a flash pan and some very interesting camera placements. Uh you notice this opening scene in which McPherson has his first uh meeting with a Lidecker. Um We've moved from room to room. We've moved moved from that first room over to the bathroom and now into what appears to be his chamber, uh, or Lidecker's chamber, or his bedroom. And there's the the baseball, a uh, uh, little uh, primitive video game, or uh, a <laughs> little game that uh, McPherson plays. You see, this is what I mean by Preminger being slick. Uh, we had a mirror shot there uh, where uh, this movie won the Oscar for Best Black and White cinematography, and uh, Clifton Webb was nominated for an Oscar for his performance here. I'll have a lot to say about Clifton Webb, but that mirror shot we had where Lidecker was uh, tying his tie is really cool to me because it sort of, I think, crystallizes what I'm talking about with Preminger being a slick director. It's a very, uh, you know, we've seen mirror shots in movies all the time, and I I think that was actually a pretty clever one. It, it, It sort of Um, The actors move, I think, originally moved in uh, to the frame and sort of blocked themselves uh, in front of the camera as the sort of camera dollied. And we didn't notice it so much as a lot of times with mirror shots, you see, you sort of have the sense that the director is doing a mirror shot and wants you to notice it as a mirror shot. But there... You know, mirror shots. I think tend to work when someone is actually using the mirror, and their behavior in which they're using the mirror is natural and motivated by what's going on in the scene. There, liedecker was dressing and tying his tie, so it's natural that he would he would use the mirror. You see that just that that sort of uh, little bit of a elevated camera or crane shot, just just of them getting out of the ca- the car, just the the going here to there, little uh 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 transition beat that we had with the guy outside reading the newspaper even that was sort of an elevated angle crane shot Um, this movie stands out as a noir for um, all of the ways it is a noir but all the ways it sort of is not a noir it sort of goes against a lot of the conventions of noir Uh, and I'll, I'll describe what I mean by that coming up but it also stands out because so many noirs were B pictures and low budget pictures, or relatively low budget pictures. And here you have a first-rate director, and uh, it's a studio picture. Uh, You have known actors, stars, and you have, uh, like I said, that crane shot, that very elegant uh, opening to the movie. Uh, It sort of has the sheen. Uh, It, of course, was nominated for an Oscar. It sort of of has the sheen and the, the luster of a first-rate Hollywood picture. And so many noirs didn't. And and I find that so so much of what we love about film noir comes from the fact that they're sort of, you know, that movies like Detour, you know, that, or, that so many of them are just sort of lovable in the the low budgets and the way they got around that. The opening sequence that we saw here, this is kind of a continuation of the opening sequence of uh, MacPherson goes to uh, meet with Lydecker or interview Lydecker for the first time. That was our opening scene. And now together as a team, uh, MacPherson has brought Lidecker along uh, to meet with uh, Ann Treadwell. Dana Andrews. I really like Dana Andrews. Um, He resembles, he's not to be confused with, uh, uh, Glenn Ford, uh, another actor of the period uh, star, whom whom he resembled. I I think the the two men resemble each other. And uh, Dana Andrews is one of those guys. Here's Vincent Price, the wonderful Vincent Price. Um, I love him in this movie. You notice also, uh, I'll, I'll continue about Andrews, but you notice also just uh, one of the delightful things in this movie is the way in which the sort of, I don't want to say femininity, but the effete or sort of foppish nature of the uh, uh, Shelby Carpenter character and the Waldo Lidecker character is sort of not, uh, it's not hit, hitting us over the head, but it, it just comes out in the performances. It comes out in the, in the little wardrobe touches too. uh uh Dana Andrews uh as the again the hard-scrabble streetwise cop the uh the working-class guy has a has a little bit of a handkerchief in his pocket there but but he's got a single-breasted suit cigarette dangling he's uh cynical uh, and it's interesting what his arc is i'm not even sure how to describe it he you know what does he go from what to what he's he's cynical at the beginning and cynical at the end but um Single-breasted suit. There you have Vincent Price. Double-breasted suit, wider lapels, a lighter-colored suit. Uh, Waldo Lidecker, that uh, carnation or whatever the hell it is on his on his lapel. Um, just little little hints of of the uh, the fact that there's two different worlds colliding here. In addition to the what happened to Laura Hunt, uh, conceit of the movie and and the this murder mystery and. Uh, that just uh, as the movie goes on it it gets more convoluted and and you know, you, you're thinking three quarters of the way through how is this story going to be resolved? but in addition to that th- there's there's a secondary kind of conflict uh, and complication in, in these worlds that are colliding, this sort of streetwise uh, world of of uh, the Dana Andrews character coming into this world to investigate. Uh, these, these society types, these rich people. There's a lot about his character, uh, going back to Dana Andrews, there's a lot about his character here that uh, is not really played up as much as they could have. The movie isn't really about him. Um, it, it's funny, you know, when you think about lead characters, uh, I, there's three different people in this movie that you could argue are are the lead character, but but who is the movie about? I'm asking because I'm not sure. It's one of the reasons I chose this movie is because there's quite a bit that I've, you know, I've given it a lot of thought. I've revisited the movie now. I've always loved it. And I'm still sort of working through this stuff. The invasion, the, the idea, another sort of thematic thing is the idea of personal space being invaded and, and personal stuff being invaded... Um uh, the reading somebody's letters coming into their home when they're not there. Even the opening scene, uh, Macpherson comes to Waldo Lidecker as he's bathing in his home. You know th- this, uh, and he's going to be invading his privacy by reading letters that he's written to Laura, uh, and doing other things, investigating their lives. We hear now. Uh, we're hearing now uh, about Jacoby, this painter who was in love with Laura. The idea of, uh, you know, this, not ingenue, but this this just especially beautiful woman who uh, all the men around her fall in love with her and and all the women want to be her, as Waldo will say, is something that you see a lot in movies of of all time periods, and I, I think it's... Great. When you have an actress that can really embody that, and Jean Tierney is about the most beautiful actress in the history of movies, uh, you know, I mean, I, you could make a case for her, you know, you, you make, make, make your case for Marilyn, but I'll take Jean Tierney any day. Um, the big head fake here, of course, is that Vincent Price is the one who comes off as the most suspicious Anyway, Dana Andrews. Um, I really think he's one of. I've spoken about this on other commentaries. He's one of, kind of, one of those guys who got, had a reputation for being um, not bland, but just kind of one dimensional. You know, he often played characters like this who were kind of poker faced, uh, maybe not so cynical as this character, but poker faced, didn't really, uh, weren't very expressive. Um, didn't have a, a super big range as a as a actor, but a lot of great actors of this period didn't have a lot of range. Uh, I, I don't think Gary Cooper was had as much range as some other actors. I you know I I don't think uh, uh, even even Cary Grant. It was famously said you know he always plays the same character, Cary Grant. Well, he, Grant is different probably because he could do comedy very well, but. Uh, you know what I mean. Um, Dana Andrews was one of these guys, and I think he did have a little bit of range to him. The big thing about him being bland that I have a problem with is that if you really watch his performances, and, and I'm going to sound like a like a pedant here, but if you really go back and really you know study what he's doing in the scenes and the little expressions he makes and the little bits of business he gives the characters. I think you'll see that there's a lot of texture and a lot of small stuff that he's doing uh, in his performances. Uh, John Garfield was like this, too. Um, There's just a whole lot that he's doing that uh, you wouldn't see at first blush, and so some people think that he's sort of one-dimensional. It's another well-photographed scene as we begin this melt into Lydecker's story, Lydecker's flashback, Lydecker's point of view uh, that really is telling us about Laura. We've heard about her, and now we finally see her, and here's the beautiful Jean Tierney. All I was going to say about um, Dana Andrews, by the way, is that in addition to uh, what I said about him not being so bland, He's also one of the more interesting, you know, uh, movie stars. Uh, just his life, you know. Um, if, if you haven't seen movies uh, that he's done, he did uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. He um, uh, was sort of one of the leads in, in that movie, um, which won Best Picture. And he was also president of the Screen Actors Guild. He was one of those guys who... Uh, I think it was, what is it, in the 60s he was president of the screen? But he went on to be president of, of SAG. So uh, I, I didn't read a biography of him, but I own a biography of him, him that I have not um, gotten around to. Uh, it's a short little thing, but um, fascinating guy and, and uh, more than meets the eye, certainly. This is a scene that is another trope, I think, Of the young upstart or the ambitious person, whether man or woman, coming to the important person and interrupting his, in this case, his lunch. And um, the sort of important person rebuffing uh, the younger person. And then uh, we'll have it in, I I believe, the very next scene, the scene where he comes around and apologizes and they make amends somehow. And he, he takes her up on it after all or something. I actually think this scene's kind of weird. the The story uh, here, um, of course, was uh, the screenplay was written by Jay Dratler, uh, Sam Hoffenstein, and, and Betty Reinhardt. But it, it's based on the the Vera Caspary uh, novel, and I, since I have not read it, I don't know how this enc- this meeting between Lydecker and Laura uh, went in the book or. Uh, how it's been adapted here but I, I just find it kind of weird that the whole point of the Laura character is that she's so alluring and that she's so you know uh, enchanting that um, people just just sort of fall for her and and you know i the idea that he would not be more taken with her at first sight is kind of strange I think it might even be a more interesting scene if he was at once annoyed and enchanted by her or attracted to her, and then and then the the, the dialogue could be uh, you know, he wants to change the subject to her beauty or something and she wants to talk business. Lidecker as a character has such great lines, um the line about I I don't use a pen, I write with a, a of, you know feathered quill uh, tipped uh, dipped in venom um, there are a whole bunch of other li- I mean he's just a one of those characters that must have been a, a blast to write uh, this is another slick little move here it's almost like uh, uh, that that sort of office uh, scene that you get a lot in 30s and 40s movies you watch Preminger go through this wall here very slick and now he comes with the camera ahead of the character it plays plays out sort of in one movement there. I always felt this was strange that there's a boy there's an office boy and he and and the boy Lidecker wishes to be announced and there's an office boy who's uh, apparently the secretary for this room full of of women or this, this bullpen where all the women sit. And I, I, I didn't think strange. It's just sort of, uh, maybe there's a, a cultural thing there I'm not aware of. So this is, this is really, um, uh, kind of attractive the way this is blocked here. The young actor here is approaching Lidecker slowly, and we know that Liedecker's is going to say something to him and it's going to be a huge, you know, uh, he's going to, uh, there you go. Crack your skull with my stick. I mean, he's, he's, we know that he's going to whack him uh, with some sort of rhetorical insult, and we know it's coming. And, but what I really like about it is that that other actor, the woman uh, who, who just went back to her desk, uh, was behind the boy. So, in addition to all these other people watching, we have her kind of observing the young boy who's observing Lydeck, and it's just, it, it creates this dynamic tension in the scene. I find that Preminger, among his strengths, was. Directing uh, groups of people in a scene or having a lot of people in front of the camera. Uh, You know, Howard Hawks was sort of famous for that, but but having a lot of people in front of the camera and really um, managing the dance of those characters and in in their natural environments or in extraordinary environments, just managing the dance of those characters interacting uh, very well without it looking crowded. Uh, That was a great example of it right there. Now, for a movie that deals so heavily in flashbacks, I think uh, some of the movies made today that use flashbacks could take note of just uh, now we're, you know, Lydecker is, is through the voiceover explaining uh, how he guided Laura's career, and uh, I guess it's somewhat ambiguous what the nature of their um, romantic entanglement was, Um or what? whether it was an arrangement or, or some sort of uh, love affair. You know, there are all different kinds of relationships. But um, the way these melts and these, uh, you know, moving from bit to bit here, like that where he was at the hairdresser with her there, that was on screen for about two seconds. Where she's in that gown, that was on screen for about two seconds. Notice the high angle here again. Um, we're moving through... Lidecker, I mean, all of these things that are that are in the flashback that were moving really quickly along, it doesn't feel uh, hurried, right? It doesn't feel rushed. It feels natural, be- also because Clifton Webb's voiceover, is so he's such a good um, sort of voice actor. Again, the high-angle camera sort of coming in. Very... Uh, I always... Uh, you know i find that a lot of the old you know directors of old Hol- in old hollywood the ones that move the camera a lot um or or know how to or you know are kind of famous for for moving the camera a lot hitchcock and so forth uh i find that a lot of times in their movies you notice those camera movements as camera movements um and i find with preminger uh, he's sort of constantly moving the camera in, in uh, dynamic ways. And yet, you know, I, they're not there to be noticed as movements. Um, I think he really had a feel for how film was, or how f- telling storytelling in a film, in cinema, uh, must be different from storytelling in the theater on stage and how moving the camera and editing and certain imagistic things, like we just had that silhouette in the window, uh, certain imagistic things that you do with editing uh, are, you know, it's the sort of Sergei Eisenstein school of of movie making. And the way you achieve that difference or the way you um, embody that difference between theater and cinema is, is with the camera and with editing. I guess one of the reasons I love the Lidecker character so much is not because his of his put-downs, um, but that he just, uh, you know, the idea of a, a columnist being this powerful is almost um, um, a vestige of a, you know, it's almost very rare these days, but uh, back then you had Luella Parsons and other, you know, this is a very real thing of columnists having this power. Lidecker plays a radio columnist, of course, and... I just love the pleasure and the absolute um, righteous uh, uh, sense of entitlement that Lidecker has. Uh, he just destroyed uh, Jacoby's, uh career and made him a laughingstock and made Laura lose respect for him uh, just by publishing ideas about him. I I just I guess I like the Liedekerker character so much because I always like the idea of a a writer who not only does that but feels that, um, you know, is completely narcissistic in his attitude about it. He, he, well, of course I'm going to do this, and you know he proudly explains it to uh, Lieutenant McPherson. So there's uh, Shelby Carpenter's link to the American South, right? Is is uh, the Derby, uh, the Kentucky Derby, the most gl- one of the more glamorous events in the American South, every year. And I I never knew what to make of this little repartee he has with the the uh, servant or the the maid, the who, um, you know, the about the hors d'oeuvres and everything. So, uh, I, I just want to comment on it and move on. I won't get too annoying or creepy. But how about Jean Tierney in this dress? I mean, I, again, I like, uh, for, and I love that. You know, w- women just don't comb their hair like that anymore. They're just you know parting it to one side, uh, all the way on the side of her head. I mean, it looks really sharp on her. But um, yeah, that dress. I mean, I would put that up against, you know, Jane Mansfield any day of the week. Jean Harlow wore dresses like that. It's almost a, a toga. But you really I mean she's really lit I mean, I guess getting the Oscar for cinematography gets easier when you when you are lighting an actress who looks like that. I mean I really in Lever to Heaven you can see her in color, but I really think she's about the most gorgeous thing In Hollywood ever Uh, so okay I'll move on Um, so I'm not the the reason I'm not going too much into the plot is uh, at least in in terms of the sort of analytical things I'm saying is because I'm kind of saving that for when uh, we have one of the big turns and then I'll start sort of talking about the story because uh, I sort of have um, all of this seems like setup and backstory um but it's really not it's really sort of uh a kind of bait and switch that the the movie does um you know we we i mean it's important that we learn about these people as characters but a lot of the nuances of the relationships and and who's more suspicious than who you know a lot of the stuff that we're sort of trying to figure out at this point is ends up being neither here nor there uh, when we actually find out what happened. Here's another mirror shot that's just very casual and um, doesn't feel, you know, feels completely natural in the scene. It, it's, it's you know, she has a reason for going over there to put her hat on. So Vincent Price. Um, first of all, people forget Price was one of the more famous, um, you know, people of my generation probably could only, maybe they've seen Murders at the Rue Morgue or something. But, I mean, um, they probably only know him as the voice from the Thriller video, uh, you know, the John Landis, Michael Jackson video. So, th- th- I think this has been a one here, too. And pan down and we see Lidecker. So, Lidecker really is as much a detective as, as the MacPherson character. Uh, But yeah, Vincent Price was a big, um, you know, everybody knew who Vincent Price was back in the day. And uh, seeing him as a young man here and and seeing his performance in this movie, I had not seen Laura in several years before I started watching it again to prepare for, for this commentary. and, it really stuck out to me just what a good actor he was and um how he kind of you know all the actors almost all the leads in this movie because of the way the story's told and the order in which the audience is given certain information, and what's withheld from the audience—they all have to kind of walk a line with their performances, except probably Dana Andrews. Uh, but they all kind of have to walk a line, and I find that he—he he walks that line in the—in the, in the most—the uh, way that's most appealing to me. Uh, Liedecker here, uh, and and the performance by Clifton Webb. Eh, the, um, you know, obviously. Nominated for an Oscar, but I, I, I think the the big strength of the performance by Clifton Webb here, to me, is that he. I mean, a lot of actors who would play a role like this would just would just be a shit, you know. If they didn't get Clifton Webb, they could have gotten you know Claude Rains or somebody like that, and um, he he's just a shit, and he he's mean to people, and he's unscrupulous. And uh, he takes pleasure in, in his facility with language and uses it to put other people down. But there's something about Clifton Webb that, that manages to make us feel for this guy. I mean, just the face he has on right now um, when he is out there in the cold in the snow and he sees that he's essentially being cuckolded and uh, the painter is up in Laura's apartment and Laura's lied to him i mean there's you know characters who are this um extreme often are find often get the most sympathy certain audience members aren't going to give them any sympathy but they they often are the ones that get the most sympathy from many audience members like me Um, because there's some, because especially now through the lens of, uh, you know, contemporary, uh, uh, psychobabble, you might say, um, we see how broken a man who behaves like this is and the way he wants to possess Laura and wants, you know, sees her. You know how special she is as a a symbol of his own singular uh, awesomeness. I'm not going to talk too much about the movie or, or <laughs> the movie, uh, the music in the movie, except to say that we've already had a couple instances in music. Uh, Preminger loved putting. Um, love to use music uh, by the way this scene here doesn't really come off as well uh, I think as some of the other scenes in the movie it, it, it's essentially another trope right it's the oh my goodness Laura what are you doing here it's one of those scenes uh, we were just having dinner uh, just about to call you know I, I think Vincent Price's performance is fine I just don't think it comes off As well, Clifton Webb is great, the way he observes, and and Gene Tierney is great. Uh, But it's just something about the way it's written. That's a nice uh, phony background there, a phony phony skyline. A little easier for that to come off in a black-and-white picture. The music was, um, uh, you know, I'd forgotten also that uh, the the composer David David Raskin, of course, did, did the music, and I'd forgotten just how famous the music from Laura was. On you know, the AFI has those lists of the 100 greatest, you know, fart jokes in movies, or I mean, <laughs> they've gotten that precise with some of these lists. They have a ton of them, but they had the 100 greatest uh, movie scores and uh, some surprising ones on there, by the way. You should take a look at it. But uh, Laura, I think, was number seven, and uh, that jogged my memory. It was like, oh, yeah, this is a very... uh, Not being a a sort of music person, I I don't have a lot of insight into it, but, I mean, I remember that this is an extremely uh, well-regarded score and, and that Preminger would often look for... Uh, cool ways of using music in his movies. He uh, wanted a, to use even a, a Duke Ellington tune in this picture. Ultimately, they didn't. But Ellington himself uh, appears in Anatomy of a Murder, uh, playing the piano next to James Stewart. Uh, and and uh, if you haven't seen Anatomy of a Murder, that's, uh, I think I said, that's his best movie, Preminger's best movie. And... For me, uh, it's, I think it's Jimmy Stewart's best performance. I really love that movie. Probably one of Ben Gazzara's better earlier performances, too. Um, uh, and another um, very, very beautiful actress of yesteryear uh, is in that movie uh, named Lee Remick. One of the most gorgeous actresses ever Black pony scotch it's very strange now this is the the um, the servant Bessie here something they could have they're sort of hinting at here and they they don't really well maybe they play it just right they don't play it up a lot except for in this scene where i mean she's obviously not obviously uh, that's the whole point but she's there there's the sense here that she is infatuated with laura whom she serves uh as much as some of these men uh, the way she speaks about her um i think the dynamic here is is really um, pretty great. Uh, because, as I said, the hard Scrabble Streetwise cynical cop Lieutenant McPherson, Mark McPherson, uh, in the world of these rich, you know, these rich society types, these uh, snooty people, um, you know, uh, Abe Roman, the sausage king of Chicago, you know, this, 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 this sort of snooty environments like that, like. Uh, it is like that, you know, think the guy who who wouldn't let Ferris Bueller and his friends in that restaurant, right? And then you have, uh, in the midst of all that, in the middle of all that, when we think that Dana Andrews is, and they're doing the, the sort of classic fish out of water thing, but then in walks this uh, working class servant, Bessie, who is plain, even more plain spoken than Lieutenant McPherson, even more sort of streetwise and uh, and uh, suspicious of, of cops and says so and and uh, doesn't even want to be called Miss you can call me Bessie and uh, she's clearly lying here but she'll come clean uh, to, to you know, she was trying to protect Laura so that people wouldn't think she was you know that kind of girl who had a, a, a unmarried woman who had uh, men in her apartment at night with bottles of scotch. I think she could have been costumed a little better. This is a little bit, uh, you know, Elmira Gulch here. I think this costume, but I mean that's it makes sense in a way. But I mean, it'd make more sense if she was dressed as a. A domestic, uh, you know. I mean, if she were wearing her sort of maid clothes, um, but I guess that that outfit makes her look uh, as plain as they. Boy, it is Elmira Gulch. She's got the black shoes and everything. McPherson making himself at home. Again, you see the furniture sort of in the foreground. Uh, uh, the the characters are really in this set there in the middle you know that that chair is in the foreground now Um, yeah this is what I uh, uh, this is what I mean by um, sort of red herrings or or the movie um, gives us all these you know we're supposed to Raise an eyebrow when he says, "Oh, I don't drink," and it's like, "Oh, I'll have a drink." Well, if you you know, we're supposed to be taking note of which characters seem to be acting suspicious, and and we know that McPherson's taking taking that information as well, although he never shows us his cards at any point in the movie. Uh, until really, you know, the end, uh, the case sort of figures itself out uh, more than he does stuff. But um, I mean, he taps her phone. But <clears throat> pardon me. But we're supposed to like, oh, Shelby Carpenter didn't want a drink, and oh, he wants a drink, and you know we're supposed to. In in the end, we're we're being prodded into paying attention to certain things, and those things don't matter. It's it's what I mean. You could say it's a strength of the movie. I'm not I'm not saying it's not. There's one thing before I um, speak a little more, more about the production. There's there's something here about um, uh, that I, I just can't leave, leave it go unmentioned, which is um, the behavior of cops in movies, particularly old movies, uh, is never something that is super realistic. Um, but having said that, the behavior of McPherson... Uh, you see his fellow cop there who kind of flanks him at, at various points and helps him out. Uh, but the behavior of McPherson in this movie is ridiculous. I mean even by movie standards, some of the things I, I mean this is a big murder case of a prominent socialite and an advertising executive, and um, well, there you saw another cop and in the previous scene, but mostly he's sort of going at it alone. Uh, His method of investigation seems to be uh, to um, (laughs) not just interview people, but kind of hunker down with them and uh, sort of observe them anthropologically. And here he's in the classic noir garb. But like I said, he's, he's only one of the detectives in the movie. Many of the main characters essentially become detectives in their own way. I guess the most ridiculous thing is, is, is toward the end. And I'll, I'll probably laugh at it when it comes is where there's that party where he announces that he's going to arrest the real killer. And, uh, you know, he, he makes like a whole event and a show of it. And there are no other cops there. And it's just, um, that's never been how police work is, is done. I mean, it, it was very Agatha Christie, you know, you announce when event, uh, when something, when, a a plot point's going to be resolved or when the the cat's going to be pulled out of or the rabbit's going to be pulled out of the hat cat's going to jump out of the bag whatever animalistic metaphor you want to use and and then it happens that way but with a little twist so I I get that that's what they're doing but it's just it has no relationship to the, to the way even then that police would handle a murder case you know and the fact that he refers to to it as he he, he the station or, or his chief you know or his 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 boss at the police station he's talking on the phone later in the movie and he's like yes I'm I'm going to be arresting the real killer here at this party and everybody at the party can hear him and he says uh, yes oh I'm not alone you know it's just the fact that he's referring to the person he's going to arrest as the killer is like he's As if he were judge, jury, and executioner. He's just making an arrest on, on, um, because there's sufficient evidence to arrest. And then, you know, whether that person is convicted is something different. But it's just, it's all these little things that, uh, usually noir movies are, that are a little grittier sort of get these things, uh, a little closer to right than Laura does. But this movie is essentially, um, a psychological drama we uh, fantasy it, it it almost goes in a it feels like it's going to go in a supernatural direction like in moments like this where he's studying this portrait of the deceased this this movie does a kind of the reverse of what psycho does instead of killing the female lead um, a good ways into the movie instead of killing her off it in a sense, resurrects her or shows us that she isn't really dead. I guess this device is how they tapped phones back then. It's got the little rotary on it. The... Um, again, objects in the foreground here. This whole... A lot of these sets and Laura's apartment and Lydecker's apartment and... Anne Treadwell's place, her house. A lot of these sets um, sort of have a Renoir feel to them, Uh, Jean Renoir. The Rules of the Game, and you know, the comedy, uh, comedy of manners. You know, these um, sort of. He made a couple movies like that where you had these kinds of sets and people, lots of characters, whooshing around the sets and saying witty, pithy things to each other. What I like about Lidecker's put-downs, by the way is that um uh as he probably is in print he he he's very economical with them he he uses a very short amount of words to to just tear somebody completely down even little snipes like that about you know the socioeconomic class difference between Lieutenant McPherson and and the uh, Waldo Liedekker he says you're probably dreaming of you know Bringing Laura candy. Uh, drugstore candy, of course. You know, I mean, just a just complete shit, and yet we feel badly for him. Of course, the ending of the movie doesn't work unless we feel for him. The point at which uh, McPherson actually falls in love with Laura, this is uh, a nice composition here with her over his shoulder, and again with her over his shoulders, that little camera movement there. But the point at which he actually falls in love with her and becomes, you know, where he becomes obsessed, the the movie doesn't play it up as much as it could, but uh, the point at which he actually becomes obsessed with her is unclear, you know. Um, When, by the time Lidecker accuses him of it, it's it. It sort of hasn't been made clear to us that that's what's going on with him. Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, you. I mean, like I say, he, uh, the character that Andrew's plays here, McPherson, really keeps his cards close to the. T- he he's not uh, uh, come out and tell you how I feel. uh character. We don't really experience the story through his eyes at a lot of times. Here we kind of do. And um, I don't know if in this scene coming up when Gene Tierney enters, I don't know that um, it's one of the great reveals in the movies here. Um, Because is it a dream or not? What's going on? Uh, It's really kind of avant-garde almost. i i feel uh andrews acting here could be a little better um you know just the whole idea that I mean, it's a hard thing to pull off as an actor he's waking up and uh it's disbelief you know she's he's in disbelief uh, i thought you were dead and yeah the, this quizzical look he has on his face uh, doesn't quite work for me i don't believe that that's the face that someone in this position would make um I mean, he's seen her corpse, presumably. I think he would be scared shitless or making a different kind of face or something, even if he's not scared shitless because cops have, uh, you know, are are trained not to be, uh, not to give in to uh, certain kinds of fear and stuff. But I don't know, just doesn't come off as well. And of course, we have the old, the thing in movies that you always see of a cop just quickly flashes his badge and no matter what he's been doing the person goes oh okay you're a cop like if i came home after a long trip and a guy even a man as handsome as dana Andrews, were sitting in my fucking living room asleep with brandy and i turned the whatever he's drinking and i turned the lights on and said who are you and he said i'm a cop i'd say uh, I don't know if I believe you. You know, I, I'm not sure that I'm I'm gonna take that. And even if he shows me a little badge in his wallet, I'm not sure that I'm gonna believe that. I think Gene Turney's acting here in this scene is pretty good too. I don't know when women stopped wearing hats like that, but I'm glad they stopped. Uh, it it there's actually has kind of a 1920s vibe to it. Actually, it looks like, it has kind of a Dutch. It, 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 it's obviously a rain hat or something, but it, it it looks like uh you know one of those uh. Um, servant girls that Vermeer would paint you know (laughs) those Dutch hats uh, that they wore now this whole thing with Diane Redfern and the whole it's not a subplot I mean it's part of the main uh, thing that happened here you see she kind of looks like Jean Tierney. she looks like a she looks like the stand-in for Jean (laughs) Tierney. Kind of, you know, a little little fleshier face, not as beautiful, um, not as striking, maybe. But the whole thing with Diane Redfern and Shelby Carpenter was cheating or something, and Diane Redfern falls in love with him, and so then they end up at her... It's, you know, uh, it's second only to Gilda, in the sense that a a plot that's so, you know... it's complicated even more than they needed to complicate it. And sometimes in sort of second-rate mystery movies, they, uh, second-rate sort of authors will, will uh, I think, uh, overcomplicate things more than they need to because they think it's going to throw readers off the scent. But the best mystery writers, like Agatha Christie, if you, if you um, sort of go back to her work, you'll see that, I think you'll see that she really uses character and um, uh, other aspects of the the psychology of what's going on to throw people off the scent. And I think that's more true in in Good Mysteries, Um, but needless plot complications that uh, end up becoming just facts, extra facts, F-A-C-T-S, that um, are just being tossed at the audience. if he is in love with laura here i think we should see more of it you know he's he's sort of doing his job here i mean we notice little subtle you know he looks at her the eye contact is a certain you know he looks at her a certain way we we do notice stuff but i always felt like he should he should almost have trouble doing his job if he's in love with her here Gene Tierney was um I think I'm going to start um sort of talking about plot and and uh, some other aspects of uh, what we're seeing here now uh now that one of the big shoes has dropped in in our plot here and we've had uh the living laura walk into onto the scene so gene tierney was 24 at the time uh i think i mentioned she's in the movie leave her to heaven uh, which is uh, she's also remembered for. This is the movie that she's really remembered for. Um, She really was the, you know, obviously beautiful. And I have to say, there are just not many in any era, this era or that era or any one in between or before or after, there's just never going to be very many actresses who can play a part like this and make the movie believable. I mean, the the, the the whole point of a lot of what's going on in this movie hinges upon the fact that there's something so beautiful, so almost otherworldly alluring about Laura, that people just instantly fall for her and fall hard, and even a cynic like Dana Andrews here is sort of, you, you, you see that there's a thing between them, you know, um you obviously need a really beautiful actress to play that part, but she also has to, the thing about the Laura character, I mean, you could do a whole feminist reading of this movie where she's actually a strong woman character at a time where you didn't see lots of characters like that. She's sort of accomplished, uh, professionally. She's, she has, a uh, an intellect and, uh, and she's achieved things. She's the one who actually gives men jobs. Um, it, and so in addition to her beauty and her class and her sexiness, you know, the way she filled out that dress at that earlier scene, um, in addition to that, she has this intellectual respectability to her. And, and um, she's, she's intellectually formidable and smart and accomplished and she's got gumption and she's just a well-rounded person. She's not just a bombshell. And in fact, one of the reasons I think the movie is, um, uh, has sort of a feminist uh, bent to it, in some ways at least, is because the qualities that are not sexual or don't have to do with her appearance, um, the qualities that she's professionally accomplished, that she's very smart, uh, you know, that she has gumption, that she has guts. That you know, those non sexual qualities about her ones that don't have anything to do with her appearance are ones that these men, whether it's Shelby or Lydecker or even even McPherson, they respect her and find her attractive for those things as well. Um, especially, of course, Lydecker. Um, of course, he goes mad, but. They they really sort of are taken with her for those reasons as well, and 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 they even uh, you know Lidecker says as much. We literally have a gun over the mantle in this movie, which I just I think I mentioned this movie on another commentary. As like you know, there are movies in which you actually have a gun above the mantle, and they actually uh, seem to be aware of that that old uh, you know that old um, adage about. Uh, Who's it originally attributed to? Is it Pushkin? Pushkin? It's not Kafka. Is it Kafka? I don't know. This movie was produced by Daryl F., uh, Daryl Zanuck, and um, a couple of things to note about the movie's production and. Uh, I was going to save this to the end but this is this actually seems like a good time because this this is kind of a the transition scene more than anything I mean it, it's sort of styled as if something pivotal happens here but um it's really the last third of the movie that that uh, it's really sort of everything that comes after this that um We're still, I think story-wise, we're still sort of being thrown off the trail here, is what I'm saying. But yeah, Zanuck, um, as far as the casting of the movie went, Zanuck did not want Clifton Webb uh, in the role of Waldo Lidecker. And it is said, it has been reported in in various uh, places, that um, part of the reason was that he felt that Lidecker was, or rather, um, Clifton Webb was a little too effeminate, foppish, a little too gay. Um, and for some reason, he didn't think that would work for the character. Of course, those are qualities that would work for the car- Or he thought that his performance was a, a little too um, foppish or something. Something like that. It was some sort of homophobic attitude that Zanuck had. And, of course... Um, yeah, I encourage you to read about Clifton Webb. He was fascinating, too. Clifton Webb was gay and uh, li- I believe lived with his mother for his entire life. Um, and I think some people have alleged that maybe Zanuck was also uncomfortable with the fact that he... Uh, that he, uh, Webb, was sort of a confirmed bachelor, as they would have said then. There are other stories about um, Zanuck being um, less than tolerant as well. But anyway, um, there's a great story uh, that I think is in the biography, the sort of main biography of Zanuck that everybody always brings up, uh, I think it's in there. Uh, there was one place that I read it online, but there was I read it in a book, too. Uh, this old story about uh, Laura when they were sort of testing cuts of the movie when Preminger had finished principal photography, and it has to do with uh, a test screening or a, a screening that had some press added or something where uh, uh, Zanuck was a big advocate for the ending essentially the ending of Laura making the movie, uh, a, and it was all a dream movie. Uh, a movie where, uh, somehow the character wakes up and we find that everything we've seen, it was all a dream. Uh, evidently Zanuck liked that idea, (laughs) which is, is ridiculous. But, I mean, it should be said that Zanuck was a very successful, you know, studio head and, and, uh, made a lot of uh, prudent and wise and uh, uh, artistically admirable decisions in his time, too. But um, the idea that uh, he wanted this all to be a dream um, is not one of them. And there's this great story where Walter Winchell uh, was somehow at that screening and uh, told Zanuck, uh, well, the point is Preminger was against it, being all a dream. He wanted the ending we sort of get in the film that we have today, Laura. And the story goes that uh, Walter Winchell said it's a, it's a good movie, but you got to get rid of that ending, tells this to Zanuck. And so Zanuck actually told Preminger that, uh, you know, essentially you were right, I was wrong, and we have the ending that we have today. I'll talk, I have a lot to say, um, I'm sort of, I'm sort of holding off, I I don't usually do this in commentaries, I apologize, I'm sort of holding off on some of the big sort of, um, analytical theories I have on the movie and some of the big observations I want to snap off, I'm sort of holding off to uh, certain points in the movie, but I, I should just start getting into them here anyway, um, just because I have a whole thing with, um, David Lynch that I have a whole thing with uh, this movie and how it might relate to David Lynch and Lynch's work that I haven't even really fully thought out in my own head. And, uh, so I want to kind of wait till the, the big climax of this movie to the end. And I have some other sort of, uh, some other ways that this movie is sort of similar to, um, some other movies that that I think uh other people probably have noticed but I find the similarities uh, really kind of cool so I I will kind of uh, get into that when the third act kind of picks up but you see how Bessie reacted to Laura when she walked in the kitchen she screamed and she's still you can see she's still shaking with fright um this is why Dana Andrews has the reputation of you know, being a little bit bland, because you see, he's just got a sort of a stiff face here, um, tight-lipped, you know, but the way she screamed, I mean, that scream, I guess, you know, she, she, that's what I met before, that's the reaction I, some sort of extreme reaction to seeing someone alive that you... Thought was dead, and people had seen the corpse. You know, um, I like that the Laura character is essentially she's, you know, not portrayed as, uh, an a bad woman or one of those, uh, uh sort of morally questionable women that we get in movies of this period. She's she's portrayed as a. A, a decent woman who um, has a complicated personal life, but she's a she's a good person and and yet she smokes on screen a lot in this movie and I, I like that because you don't usually see that in movies of this period. So so this is pretty cool here. I mean obviously Dana Andrews's character is a little bit jealous at this point and upset that Laura is once again spoken for. That she's sort of uh, made amends with Shelby. Now what? Whatever. Now his lawyer. Now this is so. This is another thing that pisses me off. It doesn't piss me. Off. It's just kind of funny. Like his lawyer says, um, "My lawyer told me I can't do a Vincent Price voice, uh, but uh, he doesn't even sound like the Vincent Price that he would." S- in this movie, it not It was really in his older age that he got the voice that made him famous. But he says there, my lawyer told me any anything I said uh, was said under duress and can't be used against me. Well, that's bullshit. I mean, if his lawyer told him that, I mean, duress means, and I think pretty much has always meant in American law, has always meant in American law. Um, You know, taking away someone's free will or the the legal conception of free will, you know, taking away someone's ability to make a choice, uh, certain kinds of coercion. And um, that that isn't what uh, Officer McPherson or Lieutenant McPherson has done uh, or did when they were at the cabin. So he just has he just has a shit lawyer. See, see what I mean about Vincent Price's performance is, look here, fella, you're not to talk to to Miss Hunt like that. You know, he's trying to stand up to McPherson, and he just doesn't, It doesn't, <clears throat> it's not believable. McPherson isn't intimidated at all. Now look at that, I mean, look at the lines, uh, Clifton Webb. It's no wonder that he's getting nominated for an Oscar for that. I mean, in addition to being a great actor, I mean, the line, you know, get the handcuffs and take him off to the Hooskow. You know, I mean, it's just... And he delivers these lines with such aplomb. I have to say, uh, about Clifton Webb, if you're unfamiliar with him as an actor, you might be interested to know that... Uh... Oh, what did he do? I just... Oh, well, the original Cheaper by the Dozen, he was in. Uh, but he was really... Uh, a lot of people probably these days don't even know that um, the, the, remember the tv show with bob Uecker, uh mr belvedere uh and you know, it was very uh, actually a good show i actually liked the old mr belvedere from the 80s uh where this this british uh man became the nanny for this american all-american family and worlds collide um He's a stereotype of a British man, and the family's basically a stereotype of an American family. But um, that was—I mean, he—that was based on original films that were. I mean, uh, Clifton Webb was the original Mister Belvedere, and you can see the kind of actor he is and his 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 manners. And he's like I say, like a Claude Raines type. He's very good at playing the snooty asshole, and uh, he was the original Mister Belvedere. So, um, sorry, I'm just getting some water. Next time I can't, shouldn't leave my water all the way the fuck over there. I don't know what this outfit. At this point, I'm just ogling uh, Jean Tierney, but <laughs> I'm not sure I like this outfit that she's in as much. It's so almost has a 1970s look to it. Now I'm a fashion critic over here. Um. Let me get into my big, uh, my big sort of thoughts about this movie and how it, how it, uh, its influence and how it relates to. I, I think I mentioned David Lynch and how it relates to some other movies, and then in the home stretch of the of the picture, I'll I'll talk about uh, uh, some of the plot points that I think are a little bit good and a couple that I think are not so good and then I'll um uh, sort of also in the home stretch get into how this movie is functioning in the annals of film noir this is part of of course the my little uh pet project of a, a series on film noir interesting film noir and um I think this movie is a is a tremendous specimen. I, I think I mentioned already, you know, as a, I'll get into it later. But I mean, as a specimen, it's it's in it has the sheen of an Oscar nominated A movie, you know, because it it was an Oscar nominated A movie, but it has that it has all of these noir uh, bits and pieces to it, and you know, it's kind of a noir apparatus, but in many ways, it's not. I mentioned, you know, he's he's Lieutenant McPherson, not Detective McPherson. In many ways, it's not a noir. It, it's it, not that if he were had the rank of detective instead of lieutenant, that would make it more of a noir. I'm just saying that um, there are spots where it could have... I don't think the movie is trying to be a noir so much as it's trying to be a mystery, a psychological mystery. And um, there's a lot of psychological territory that the movie could have mined that it doesn't quite go to because it's more interested in the own sort of backward somersaults that its plot is doing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, this is the ridiculous phone call. I told you I'd bring in the killer today. Yeah, I was just going to bring him in. I can't, I'm not alone. Yeah, there's a bunch of people at this party fucking looking at you. <laughs> ridiculous i mean i mean he, this is where I, cell phones would have come in handy because then he could have walked out onto the terrace and not had everybody you know um hearing what he's saying i mean the uh, yeah i mean the, the idea that it would the cop would make it make a show of it like this Yeah, I I really like the Bessie character. You see all the the actors are kind of, um, all the actors in the background become uh, sort of part of the tension of the scene. This is, Preminger was really good at. Preminger, um, if you're not as familiar with him, I think last year, yeah, I bought it last year, a biography of him came out by... um, a pretty good writer. It was reviewed in the New York Times Book Review, and that's where I found out about it. And so I bought this new biography of Preminger, and it was very good. It was very, very readable. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, um, biographies uh, aren't as good as... uh, I love reading biographies, but a lot of times they don't you know, people's lives are not stories that have been crafted to be told, and so not everything is interesting. And uh, but this book uh, really was uh, told his life in a uh, revealed his life in a very cool way. And I, I uh, I'll link to that book. <laughs> I love that punch. See, that was a really good movie punch right there. You see what Vincent Price did? His performance too. Uh, he got punched right below the sternum in the in the bread basket and he didn't just fall it, he sort of stumbled and keeled over and then fell back a little bit and then sat in a chair sort of under his own power but still sort of hurt you know um it gets very noir here the lighting <laughs> i like these heat lamps that it's it, they're meant to um uh you know coax information out of a out of a suspect and here they just they just make her look pretty <laughs> They're just key lights to make her look hot. That's really funny. But yeah, that was a good—that was a good sort of movie punch where the person just didn't fall out of frame. The camera actually watched him sort of go down. But yeah, Preminger—I um, find that a lot of people don't know him um, or know his movies enough. Um, the big movies he did. Uh, let me see. I'm a big Preminger fan. Let me see if I can get the years. Um, did I write him down? Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, he did movies like Exodus. He did uh, my favorite uh, movie of his, Anatomy of a Murder, in 1959. Uh, Laura here, which we're watching, is another big movie for him, 1944. He did The Man with the Golden Arm with Frank Sinatra and Kim Novak, a very gritty movie about heroin addiction in uh, 1955. The movie was ahead of its time in some ways. A uh, good movie too, a little bit overlong, and then he did advise and consent in '62. Uh, another movie that was ahead of its time, uh, in some ways, and sort of retrograde in others. But um, those are kind of the high points of his of his output. But he was, um, I think, you know, in those movies I mentioned, he's a, he's a real artist, and. Uh, and, you know, did some really stylish, stylish things without showing off. I mean, Hitchcock was a visionary and and completely fucking innovative when he was at his best, but he was also a show-off. And many times the greats are show-offs, you know, the, you know but um, there was something really understated about the way, the way Preminger directs pictures, and I think he's. I think he's really interested in story, and he's really interested in character. And I don't think he's as interested in, um, especially having read that biography. I, I don't think he's that interested in people thinking that he's a great director as much as um, getting the picture right, getting the footage right. And um, he had a way with actors that uh, many. Uh, he was part of that whole. Um, Generation of directors and and artisans who came over from Europe, um, as the the Nazi regime was spreading, and sometimes they weren't as great with actors. But some of and some of it has to do with the language barrier. Some of it has to do with uh, just. Um, Intolerant ignoramuses uh, who are movie stars in this country who just because someone has an accent they they get perturbed or something uh, just because someone speaks with an accent or something. But, but um, he uh, Preminger was not one of those. Uh, one of those who had trouble with actors. Uh, he was he was he had a way with actors, and uh, you know. So every once in a while you get one of them who has like a, like a Billy Wilder uh, who. Um, Directs actor. What am I trying to say? Directs actors, but sort of doesn't over-direct them. Doesn't try to, um, doesn't try to dictate a performance, but help helps get those actors in the best position to where they can give a good performance. You know, it's about the actors. It seems like uh, whether it's back then or these days, it's all about making them feel comfortable. I guess. Okay. So I think in... Uh, the, here's my whole David Lynch thing with this movie. I think if you look at this movie, what is it about? Uh, I mentioned at one point it, it almost looks like it's going to become a dream sequence. We know that uh, uh, that there was that ending of it was all a dream and, and, and uh, uh, Zanuck finally agreed to scrap it. So the whole idea of dreams is... on some level operative in this movie, Uh, the whole idea of a woman, uh, a beautiful woman uh, being murdered and being confused uh, either before or after death with another woman, Uh, the whole idea of that woman being the object of uh, many people's affections, Uh, and the whole idea of of that death or non-death Becoming uh, itself the story, or the story of the fallout of the event of her death or not having the event of her not having died or died, uh, becoming the fallout for the story that unfolds. Um, I just described Laura in a bunch of different ways. There, I love the use of the word "dame" in this movie by Waldo. He uses it with such scorn. You know, you can't believe that a word like that even even exists. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, I mean, all that describes Laura, right? But it also describes some of David Lynch's work. And I, and I think David Lynch was influenced by this movie uh, and got it rattling around in his head because um, the way I described, you know, in, in broad strokes, the way I de- sort of generalized a description about Laura's plot is also sort of a way you could describe um, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. Uh, also a way you could describe Mulholland Drive. And if you look at those, those well, Twin Peaks was a movie and a television show. If you look at um, those two examples, Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks, I think you'll see that there are just some eerie, not eerie, but there are just some uh perhaps not coincidental alignments that it has. In this movie you have a character named Laura. <clears throat> Pardon me. Character character named Laura who uh is murdered then it turns out it wasn't murdered, she's confused with someone. Else. Well in Mulholland Drive, you have ultimately when you finally tease out that plot it's another thing convoluted plot right uh you find that a woman named named uh, uh Diane uh committed murder and there was another a woman that she was in a relationship with and then uh, there's a character named Diane uh one of the actresses in Mulholland Drive is uh first name is Laura <laughs> i'm not i'm not saying this this means anything i'm not like i'm not like doing what people do to the shining and they you know see a a can of soup on the shelf and think that it it means that uh the movie is about um native american holocausters i'm not saying that these things mean anything i'm just saying it's sort of uh sort of funny um funny coincidences um yeah the, the actress's name is Laura in Mohan Drive there's a a character named Diane uh we have a Diane Redfern in this movie and then in Firewalk with me uh, or Twin Peaks the television show the whole conceit is uh you know the death of Laura Palmer who killed Laura Palmer so you have a character named Laura who killed Laura <clears throat> I'm not again. I, I just want to say I'm not doing a thing where I'm like reading into it and reading some deep meaning into these similarities. It might just be that you know Lynch liked that name or liked this movie, or maybe it doesn't even matter. There's no meaning in involved here. I, I'm just saying it's it's. Uh... Now, when you get past the, those superficialities, I do think with Preminger's work in general, uh, there are thematic. Concerns uh, and David Lynch, when he's interviewed and stuff, won't won't really talk about the um, artistic aims or the themes in his movies. He he doesn't like to, but uh, I think there are similarities in in uh, the themes explored in some of Preminger's work, uh, particularly my favorite movie, Anatomy of a Murder um this idea of jealousy and a jealous going into a jealous rage if 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 i can't have you no one can and and these these psychological um states of mind certain psychological states of mind being the engine for um a murder mystery or being the engine i mean you think of the the psychotic villain played by Dennis Hopper in blue velvet and uh, you think of this movie, Laura, in its own time and in its own way, it's touching upon themes. This is the real point I wanted to make. It's touching upon a lot of the themes and a lot of the the kinds of stories <laughs> that you get in uh, what I think is some of David Lynch's best work. So that's all I had to say about Lynch. And, um, you know, I think this movie is... When she says, I'm as guilty as he is, that's, that's pretty weird. I don't agree with that. Uh, but I think this movie is of a certain kind of subgenre. It, it belongs less to film noir uh, and more to, I think, just this weird subgenre of movies that are about some sort of deadly... Uh, obsession or jealousy or people being infatuated with a particular woman whose beauty is undeniable and enchanting and uh and they often have convoluted plots or um or um if not contrived plots uh and um you know one of those uh movies uh, two of those movies i already mentioned the twin peaks firewalk with me and the tv show and uh and mulholland drive but also Uh, there's Gilda. I mentioned Gilda with Rita Hayworth, uh, and Glenn Ford. Uh, it's the same sort of deal like Gilda, uh, and boy, talk about it. Well, they, they, they sort of have it in the Shawshank Redemption, right? When they screen that movie for the prisoners and they're all waiting for that part where Rita Hayworth throws her hair back. I mean, but she was uh, really uh, gorgeous in that movie. And there's the kiss with Jean Tierney and Glenn Ford. Um, but yeah, this is like a whole subgenre of people obsessed with a woman. Uh, I'm not talking about just obsession as a, a subgenre. I'm talking about a certain subgenre where uh, obsession with a beautiful woman and somehow leads to a deadly mystery that unfolds, and the mystery is particularly convoluted or hard to ascertain, and it may or may not involve dreams. I really think this is a kind of movie. <laughs> Like, I'm sort of half joking, but it really seems like a kind of movie. This is interesting camera work here. Um, You really get to see. You really. I mean, we really get to be in Laura's apartment here. But um, there's Gilda. There's also Hitchcock's Rebecca um, with Laurence Olivier. uh, That uh, there. Also, you had a maid. You had a maid who um was in love not with the main character in the movie but with the dead character Rebecca the first wife of the Olivier, Olivier character the maid who uh who gives the the new wife a hard time um was clearly in love with Rebecca um as other people were and we sort of hear about her and and also uh and maybe this is um a little bit more of a stretch, but also Vertigo. You know, I think Vertigo is sort of broaching this category too of, um, you know, the Kim Novak character is, uh, it's just one man who's obsessed with her, but um, the plot is so convoluted. I mean, uh, I haven't seen it, I haven't checked it in a long time, but the for a while, the plot summary about vertigo on wikipedia maybe it wasn't wikipedia i think it was wikipedia the plot summary for vertigo was just um crazy uh like you know what i apologize it may or may not have been wikipedia but um it was a website where the a website that you'd go to to read about movies uh and the just the the user generated plot summary they had was one of those that just tried to be so detailed and try and they were just arguing about whether it's even accurate and uh but part of what's so cool about vertigo is it's it's unplot summarizable um but i think vertigo is has a relationship to a movie like laura too now this is i don't think this is the uh scene where clifton webb got his oscar nomination um I don't think this is his most effective scene at all. I I think I think the bathtub, and I think when they uh, when he goes to apologize to her at the office, and I think uh, when they're at the party and he says, uh, if if I don't take my leave of these morons, I'll be mad or I'll go mad, Laura or something like that. Um, but this sort of rage that he goes into, this this sort of. I don't think it's as, you know, great. There's something about someone someone you know is crazy who's pointing a gun at you and giving you a little speech as they steady the gun and get ready to shoot you. There's something about that that's just always frightening. Once again, uh, whether it's a punch or being hit with a bullet, I enjoy the way Preminger's camera handles that. It's not like we see in some movies, right? It's it's uh, you know the camera sort of moved quick along with him, and he didn't fall in a conventional way or a way that we or that we normally see. So I really think that's cool. This is uh, just a, a quick final thought. This movie as a noir, I think, I, I probably should take back what I said. The noir aspects of it are pretty clear, uh, especially the visual aspects of noir. But I do think that it's, it's a notable noir for the way that it, it um, doesn't lean into uh, or, or doesn't insist upon being uh, a super noir. It doesn't even seem self-conscious of itself as a noir. That's why I I picked it as to be part of the noir series. I I like it, first of all, but I feel like... uh, And I feel like the movie's ability to to do that comes from Preminger, comes from the director, someone who um, was all about style, but not about style being overpowering. Uh, You know, we noted some of the... Some of the shots and some of the dynamics of the uh, the blocking and stuff earlier in the commentary, and uh, I, I I think he was all about the story without the style overpowering it. And so when he does a noir picture, this doesn't become as noiry as maybe it would have been if they would have had another director attached to it, but. I, ho- I know uh, I'm going to continue. I don't know what movie I'm going to do next here in the Film Noir series, but I'm open to suggestions, and I'm sure that I'm going to do more Preminger movies. Uh, I just have to pick which one. Uh, email me uh, and find more commentaries at robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.